0: Um, if you will have your Bibles uh, to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's, uh, that's what we're looking at this morning. And um, I'll open with a, a word of prayer. Father, you are stronger. Sin has been broken because of Christ. Your Lord of all, Father, our, even our existence, everything hangs on you. It hangs on Christ. The sins we have committed, past, present, and future, have been atoned for on his body, and he has been raised from the dead, showing us that there is life after death, And yet we get caught up in the affairs of today and we worry about things and we forget that it all hangs on you. It's all because of you. So Father, would your Spirit come and minister to us this morning as we look at this chapter from your book. That we would be reminded of the truth. That it's all because of Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Amen. On um, Monday, November 4th, 2013, uh, the show Q&A aired on Australian television. I didn't know they were going to be playing the Garth Dix testimony, and so we have some more Australian facts here. Um, Q&A is a a show um, that takes experts from different fields of study, uh, religion, politics, philosophy, science, uh, and brings them onto a panel discussion for debate. More times than not, it's uh, opposing views, so people can hear the two opinions and uh, come to their own conclusions. Uh, Now, this particular show from 2013... uh, it took place live in the Sydney Opera House with the largest viewing audience ever. And on the panel was a man called Peter Hitchens. Peter Hitchens is the brother of Christopher Hitchens, a a known uh, critic of religion and an anti-theist. Peter Hitchens was once... Very similar to his older brother, Christopher, an avowed anti-theist and a revolutionary. But over the process of several years, came face to face with the idea that he would ultimately be judged by a righteous God. Soon after, Peter converted to Christianity and his life was transformed. On the panel of the Q&A show, the final question, and this is on YouTube if you want to go up and and look for it, but on the panel, the final question comes from a member of the audience. And a lady stands up and she asks this question, which so-called dangerous idea do each of you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? One of the panelists suggested that the greatest threat to the world was uh, population density. And so his, his, his dangerous idea was population control, even calling it anti-choice, the idea of making abortions mandatory at some point. Certainly a dangerous idea, if not ludicrous, A few other panelists answer questions and finally they come to Peter Hitchens and this was his response to the dangerous idea question. The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead and that is the most dangerous idea you will encounter. One of the other panelists was a a prominent LGBT activist and he concurred by saying, I'd have to agree with that. I'm not sure what side he is on that, thinking Jesus was a great moral teacher and so he's agreeing with that, or he thinks it's dangerous, don't believe it. Well, then the moderator chimes in and he says, well, just quickly, because I don't think you can really leave it there. Why dangerous? Peter replied, I can't really leave it there. It's because it alters the whole of human behavior. And all of our responsibilities, it turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a design place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters all of us. If we reject it, it alters all of us as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he is moving on from gifts and giftings in chapters 12, 13, and 14, and he's turning his attention to the gospel in chapter 15. Just as Peter Hitchens said back then, so it still is today. What you believe about Jesus Christ essentially determines how you view life and meaning. Everyone in the world who has ever had the ability has at some point contemplated life after death. What happens after death? They say that there are only two assurances in life, death and taxes. Well, everyone knows that death will eventually come. While that fact is known and understood and accepted, the response to that fact is where we see the differences. At the core, we are talking about the meaning of life. Because in discussing and looking at the resurrection of Jesus this morning, we are looking at the event in human history that forever transformed the way people look at life. Now, there have been cultures before Christ's incarnation that worshipped gods, uh, and there were cultures that believed in an afterlife. But what was it that made Jesus' resurrection different? To the Greek culture and what was infiltrating the Corinthian church because it was what surrounded Corinth, the resurrection was merely a, a, a spiritual raising rather or rather a departing. They saw the, uh, the material and the physical as uh, inherently evil and bad and the spirit as good. And so there's this separation that takes place. Even in Jewish culture, there are only two explicit texts that reference resurrection. So they themselves did not have a robust view of resurrection, of afterlife. So Paul, in making his case for the physical resurrection, begins with the gospel to remind the Corinthians what they have already been taught, what they had already, put their faith in, what they had believed, and what the enemy seeks to undermine. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. These beautiful words. They received the gospel, they didn't reject it. And it's something in which they stand, they stand in that gospel. Even now, you have not forsaken it. Yes, there are problems in your church, but you have not forsaken the gospel. And by which you are being saved. Not not a one and done, but a continually upholding you day by day, moment by moment. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, he's saying, stay with it, stay with it. Don't give up unless you believed in vain. And here's the thrust. Paul's concern is with the integrity of the gospel message and here as it focuses on the doctrine of the resurrection. And so here it is, verse 3. If you've forgotten it, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter, then the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to Paul, the least of the apostles because of his persecution of the church, but because of God's grace. Paul was saved and able to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles, to the Corinthians, and Paul doesn't use his past life as uh, an excuse to reject the gospel. He doesn't say, I, I, I've, done too much, I've done too much persecution of your people. I, I, I can't, I can't. I, I'm too far beyond forgiveness, as I've heard some people say. And he doesn't rest lazily in knowing that his salvation is secure. But rather, he is able to work harder because of the grace that was given to him. So whether it was Paul or another apostle, it was the message that was given to these Corinthians and in which they put their trust in, and in which they put their hope and their faith in. Jesus died for sinners, was buried, raised on the third day, seen by men, and proclaimed to you. Now, verse 12, if... Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If that is the case, if that is what you believe, then not even Christ is raised from the dead, and he's walking out their logic. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's pointless. It's a a waste of breath. And your faith is in vain. For what would you be putting your faith in? A good moral philosopher? We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God, uh, that God had raised Christ, whom he did not raise if the dead are not raised. And so, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people must be, are most to be pitied. If you pull the resurrection out of your biblical narrative, if you remove the resurrection from your worldview, if you merely spiritualize the resurrection that it was a metaphor, then you have nothing to stand on then the world is meaningless and void. Like Peter Hitchens said, it makes our world meaningless chaos, just bodies bouncing around. Albert Camus was um, a French philosopher and a writer in the 1940s and 50s. His view as a sort of uh, existentialist uh, led to the creation of a new, new school of philosophy, called absurdism. Uh, it refers to the conflict between the human tendency to seek inherent value and meaning in life and the, and the human inability to find any in a purposeless, meaningless, or chaotic and irrational universe. And thus the word absurd. It makes meaning and purpose absurd. Absurd. In one of his most famous works, The Myth of Sisyphus, Camus comes to the conclusion that if we continue to look for meaning and purpose, we will go mad in a world that is chaotic and meaningless. Therefore, his conclusion was to take your own life. And that book has been read with devastating consequences. In fact, I know a professor who has to warn his students before they read his works because it shatters worldviews. And he gives people a narrative in which to believe that is false and is extremely dangerous. Do you see that is the ultimate conclusion if you walk this theory out all the way to its end? Or as Peter Hitchens says, if Jesus Christ was who he said he was, the Son of God, and really, truly died and rose from the dead, then it turns that meaningless chaos into a designed, ordered place where there is justice and hope, and you have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It changes everything. And so Paul says emphatically in verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Christ is truly risen from the dead. Otherwise everything else is meaningless chaos. And there's no purpose in us being here. And this building serves no purpose other than to protect you from the elements And we are not forgiven of our sins and we are caught in our trespasses and we are stuck with death as our ultimate ends. And our faith is useless and futile. But it's not. Instead, we are forgiven of our sins if we put our hope and our trust and our faith in Christ. And our faith is not useless and futile. But Christ is the first fruits representing the destiny for all those who belong to him. You see, death we understand. Death is all around us. Death we see. We don't need additional proof on this. We have all experienced in some capacity the the effects or the results of death in our world. People cease to exist. So you will find almost no one that will argue with you on the merits of death. People may argue on why and how. People may even use death as an excuse not to believe in God. When death is in fact unnatural, and it stings, and we feel that, but it shows us that there has to be something more. It screams to us that there, there has to be more to life than just this passing through But what people primarily disagree on is not the existence of death, but the existence of the afterlife. And for that, in order to believe it, we need evidence. We need someone to come back from the dead and tell us about it. And I'm not talking about a 10-year-old boy who lies about it or, or people who say that they saw a light and heard a voice. I'm talking about someone who knew it was going to happen, someone whose whole life had been told about and anticipated for a thousand years, someone whose death and resurrection was witnessed. That is a person I will listen to. That's a person I want to hear what they have to say about life and death and afterlife and what its nature is. Because ultimately that changes how life itself is to be lived. It's why we're having to debate abortion right now. It's why we're, ha- we're going to have to or we'll soon have to debate euthanasia. Because if life is meaningless and chaos It serves no purpose, then, then life has no intrinsic value and so that man on the panel can say population control. Because it's meaningless. It, it, life is nothing. It's a, it's, a, it's a vapor. And there is no hope. But because we do have this hope, we fight for life. We fight for the value of all life. And we are not hopeless when death does come. We mourn the death of the believing individual because their physical presence is no longer with us in this age. But we also rejoice knowing that they are secure with Christ. And we rest assured in that because and only because of Christ's bodily resurrection. Non-believer funerals are very sad things. In Australia, we had a parish that we lived in and the church that I served in. And so we would perform funerals for anyone who lived within the parish. And, and so often we would have a lot of these people who had passed and they the family members wanted to have the service in the church. And so I would often sit in the very back and just listen because I was so curious to hear what people had to say. So sad, so hopeless, merely regurgitating some things that they did in life, which when condensed to a 15-minute a slideshow and a handful of speeches, I'm sorry, but it is sad. But you go to the funeral of a believer with people who hold to the promises of God and in God's Word and the evidence that is written in God's Word, and you experience a completely different atmosphere. I remember this one in particular that I visited and a lady who had, who had lived her life indulging in all the things that the world offers. Luxury lifestyle, elaborate vacations, clothing, jewelry, and in particular alcohol, for some reason was their main crux. Her family would go on and on, speech after speech, granddaughter, daughter, son, about how much their grandmother and mother loved champagne. How sad. How sad. But you see, it fits what Paul is saying here in verse 32 if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, eat, and drink, for tomorrow we die. This being the opposite reaction of sorts to what Albert Camus is saying in his absurdism that says take your own life because you cannot create meaning out of meaningless. This approach says enjoy life and what it has to offer in a sort of sick and twisted sense. Just enjoy the time that you have here because eventually it will all be gone and it will serve for no purpose and it will mean nothing. And you'll have nothing to show for it. So much of our world has this as their life's philosophy, their life's motto. It's the whole YOLO. You only live once. And yet how contrary this is to the life of the Apostle Paul. If there is no resurrection, then his taking and risking his own life is foolishness. He's in prison in Ephesus when he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. In verse 31, he talks about the beast that he has faced there, where they're even making attempts on his life. What gain is there in doing all of this if there is no resurrection? If that's the case, Paul should party. Party up in life like so many people have as their life's philosophy. But you see, because there is a resurrection, his risking his life and suffering for the sake of Christ is not foolishness, but it is wise. He risks his life because he looks forward to the day of resurrection, to the future reward that will be his. And we must not forget, those who reject Christ do not cease to exist But they too have bodies that are resurrected not to glory, but to judgment. Paul writes in Acts chapter 24 that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's why he works so hard to be clear with his message So don't be won over by the arguments of the culture. Don't be won over or influenced by the reasons put forth by the world, but be convinced by the Scripture. Be convinced by the teaching of the apostles. Be convinced by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in that, there is victory. For we live in these perishable bodies that are passing away. And we long for something that will last, for this world is dying. Since the beginning, people have searched for immortality, whether it's Ponce de Leon in the Fountain of Youth, or sort of joking, Indiana Jones in the Holy Grail, or cryogenic freezing of bodies, or it's the gene mapping of Today, Mankind has sought and seeks immortality. Almost as if the desire was hardwired into us, right? So man goes about seeking ways to get closer to this goal. But to get victory over death, we have to go to the source of its power. Verse 56 says, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Death entered the world through sin. So without sin, death has no power. Without sin, death has no way of stinging the human race. But through Adam's sin, everyone has been stung. Everyone is a sinner. Sin is the instrument of death, and death is the needle, with sin as its poison. And the law is the environment where the poison spreads. We know from Romans chapter 5 that the law heaps transgressions up by showing us more and more our inability to measure up, only further distancing us from an already impossible gap. Between us and God. So how do individuals get victory over this enemy? Paul says something must happen apart from us. Something must happen outside of us. A change must occur, verse 51. The dead must be raised by someone else. They cannot raise themselves, verse 52. The perishable must put on the imperishable, verse 53. And this comes from outside of us. Lives are spent trying to put on the imperishable, but to no avail. The mortal must put on immortality, verse 53. This transformation happens in an instant. At the end of time, when the trump shall sound in the twinkling of an eye, death will be totally defeated when every enemy of Christ is put under his feet. And yet, for the believer, victory has already been won. Victory is something that God gives us today. The ultimate victory is already possessed by us today. So we no longer have to live a life of anxiety looking for ways to win life. It's already been won. When Christ went willingly to the cross and three to the cross and 3 days later rose. And so what is it that you're clinging to? What are are the things that you're clinging to? What what is it that keeps you up at night? Is it finances, relationships, or health? Are those things your motivation in your day-to-day life? Let it not be so. Let it not be so. Let it be the knowledge of the victory that we have in Christ. Let your assurance in the final victory and the present victory spur you on to love and good deeds. Let the victory that has been won on your behalf motivate you to work diligently, to work well, and to work with hope. Verse 58 therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, in light of Christ's victory, which is the ground for one's faith, the redeemed sinner can have a victorious life. The Christian's motivation for being steadfast is not his own winning, but the winning of Christ. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be. As long as life endures, yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Remember that today. Remember that this week. Remember that this month, this year. We look forward to that day of the bodily resurrection with great anticipation. And we have the assurance of it because of Christ. But we remain steadfast and immovable, knowing the victory has already been won, no matter how dark it may be in our culture, in our atmosphere, in those around us, in our working spheres, in our school spheres, whatever it may be. Christ has conquered death, and we have victory in him and him alone. Praise God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, our world is so confused, so confused. About the nature of death, about the purpose in life, and they clamber over one another, seeking purpose, seeking meaning. And yet we know without Christ it is, as Albert Camus says, it is pointless, it is meaningless, it is absurd. For all that would be done in vain. And we lose all hope and we lose any sense of justice and purpose. But Christ was raised from the dead and we plant our feet in those words and we have purpose and we have meaning and there's a reason to defend life and there's a reason for the hope that is within us because it is Christ. May we not forget it. May we not forsake it. May it be the badge that we wear every day, not ashamed of it. But in knowing that there will ultimately be a resurrection of all people, that we would go out, that we would work harder than others, as Paul says. Not because of us or because of how great we are, how hard a worker we are, but because of your grace that has been poured out on us. That we not go out in our own strength but that the grace that you have showed us would be reflected so vibrantly that people would see it and that we would give an answer for the hope that is within us. Oh, we thank you for Christ. Oh, we thank you for Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.